Turn to the book of James this morning. The book of James, uh, we've been studying this first century letter that was written uh, by the uh, younger half-brother of Jesus, uh, and it's a book that's incredibly practical, and so we are learning uh, from the book of James what it means to have real faith in real life. And what I mean by that is that this book uh, really uh, puts on workman clothes, if you will. It's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's packed full of wisdom as to how we can live life. And you will notice that our artwork, uh, when we do these sermon series, have a real meaning behind them. We just don't throw a picture up there and say, you know what, we'll let people kind of think of what it is. But you're going to notice different pictures of people doing what we would call the mundane, even the menial things of life, things that we don't think have any real spiritual ramifications to it. And yet what we learn from the scriptures is, is that God's word and God's spirit wants to lead and direct us in all aspects of life. It isn't just here to tell us how to do Sunday life together. It doesn't just tell us how to do church life together. But this book and the rest of the scriptures are there to teach us uh, not only how to live our lives on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. It doesn't just teach us how to live life at church, but also to live it at work or in our communities or in our schools, with our family and with our friends and even with strangers. And so James, uh, point by point, verse by verse, is going to give us clear instructions of how to have a real faith for real life. But I'm here to caution you this morning. I feel like I'm a bit of a flight attendant uh, because as I've shared with you before, uh, a flight attendant will get on and and they'll know that because of weather, uh, the ride may be a little bumpy. The stewardess will get on and say, you know what, why don't you keep your seatbelt fastened for uh, the entirety of the flight because we might have some turbulence along the way. Uh, There's 108 verses in the letter that we are studying, and we're only one chapter into it, and it's already gotten a little bumpy, right? It's already kind of hit us in places that maybe we uh, haven't wanted uh, to be hidden. And here's the reason why. In, In 108 verses, James gives 59 commands. So he's throwing command upon command, do this, do this, do this. And we can feel at times like, man, I just got through one of the commands, and now, James, you're throwing another command my way, and I'm not sure I'm ready for it. James is incredibly practical, and he doesn't pull any punches. But I want to remind you over and over again that while this is a hard book, this book does not come, as I said last week, from a hard taskmaster. But what we learned last week is that James says over and over again, he's already said it three times in chapter 1 up to the place that we find ourselves today, that we are beloved, beloved by the writer James, but even more importantly, we are loved by the God of the universe. And he loves us, and he cares for us, and he gives us all kinds of good things, and as a result of all of that, he has, like a loving father or a loving mother will do, he has commands and exhortations for his children. Not to bring them into a world of bondage, not to beat them up or to knock them down, but to give them uh, the words of wisdom that will allow, as James has said now twice, a life that God will bless in all that we do. And so as we look to the future, as we look to the decisions we have to make, we learned last week we want to be blessed. We want the life that God will put his stamp of approval on. But in order for that to be done, 
James is going to give, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 59 commands as to how that blessing can become a reality. So don't allow yourself to, to uh, find yourself wallowing in, in your feeling of not being adequate enough. Don't feel cut down or beat up, but be challenged not to settle for what James was saying at the time was cultural Christianity. And what was true in the first century of cultural Christianity is very true today. You see, as a people, we think that religion, spirituality, uh, is something that as long as we're a little bit better than our neighbors, then we're doing okay. If we don't swear like our neighbors do, then we're doing okay in God's eyes. If we, if we don't uh, uh, fall for all kinds of debauchery and, and sin, we don't watch the same programs, we don't listen to the same type of music, well then we're doing better because we're a little better than our neighbors. But I want you to be reminded that when we evaluate ourselves based on what our neighbors are doing, whether they're good, bad, or ugly in their lives, we miss what James is going to articulate. And remember, James articulates very clearly what he heard from his brother. Jesus said, I want you to be perfect just as my Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I gulp. Perfect? I have a hard enough time being good. I have a hard enough time uh, striving for those things. And yet what James is going to say is, when we live out these truths, in fact, in James chapter 1, verse 4, he says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. And so he piggybacks his brothers of words and he says, listen, I want you to be perfect. I want you to be complete. Now, we know from the scriptures that that will not happen on this earth, but that does not mean we don't strive for it. The reason why it's not ever going to be done in this life, we'll never be perfect spiritually, is because we struggle with sin. But what we need to recognize is, is because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I are perfect in our standing with God in heaven. Jesus has paid our sins, we have been justified, and now in the process of sanctification, being made more like Jesus Christ each day. And so what James is teaching us is how to go and strive and reach through the power of the Holy Spirit for that goal of perfection. We want to be moving in the right direction, even though at times we may find ourselves falling by the wayside. And when we do, God reminds us he's a giver. He's a lover. He wants to pick us up and he wants to clean us off so that we can get back on the journey. This is going to be important because James is going to hit us right between the eyes this morning and he's going to use phraseology that things like your religion is worthless. You deceive yourself. And if we don't understand and use proper biblical interpretation of what he means, we will bring all kinds of doubts and concerns into our lives. And so we're going to walk through this this morning, uh, just a couple verses. And this verse, these verses are going to show us what we've already heard about this morning, our calling to serve the helpless, our calling to be compassionate. And we've heard from Michelle already and how we can be helping some of the most helpless uh, individuals, the unborn children of our world and the, and the parents 
that find themselves with unwanted pregnancies. And we're going to hear how God has a heart for that. And we're going to hear how God has a heart for widows and orphans. And you're going to have an opportunity this morning to spend some time in the foyer interacting and putting your faith into action by saying, I want to help. I want to do something and not just hear about it. But as we learn, not to just be hearers of the word, but to do what it says. We're going to give you an opportunity this morning in the foyer to learn more on what you can be a part of in showing the compassion that God has given you. But before we do that, let's look at our text this morning. We've only got two verses. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible and the Pew Rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 1011. Here's what James has to share with us this morning. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, I'm sorry, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Notice the three things that he talks about before I pray. If we want to be religious, we need to keep a tight rein on our tongue. We need to seek and visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And we need to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for undefiled religion. We ask, Lord, that you would move in our hearts in, in such a way that we might know what your good and pleasing will is for our lives. Lord, we know from the book of Romans that for that to take place, we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds by your spirit and your word. So transform our thinking. Allow us to see, as we learned last week, as we look into the mirror of your word, let us see where we are flawed and where we are broken. But Lord, remind us as we look in the mirror, as we looked, that we would see our natural face, the the new birth of Jesus Christ in us. That we may recognize that though we are broken, though we are flawed, though we find ourselves falling to sin, that because of your son's work and because of the spirit living in us, while we may be broken, Lord, we recognize we are co-heirs seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Give us that peace while also challenging us to be able to do what the Word says. You give us three examples today on what it means to do authentic religion. Let us hear what it says and let us put it into practice. Empower us by your Spirit to do so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a family, uh, we in the Badal house uh, like to watch TV. Some people don't like to watch TV, some do. We are a TV-watching family. And, and one of the hard things to do is to find a program that my 14-year-old likes and is appropriate for him and what's appropriate for an 8-year-old. And we have fallen in love with a, what we have come to learn is the phrase docudramas. Docudramas are documentaries that have acting to them, that are depicting through actors real life events and we have fallen in love with a program on netflix i believe it was through the national geographic channel uh, a show and i would i would commend you to uh, to watch it with your family called american genius 
American Genius. It's about 10 episodes long, and it chronicles uh, the role that Americans played in revolutionizing our world through some sort of invention of technology. Of course, you see the Wright brothers there working and perfecting uh, the airplane, and we hear about other ones like uh, the invention of the light bulb and electricity and, and all of that. And there's a backstory to all of them. And one of the ones that we just recently watched, and our boys absolutely fell in love with it, was the invention of the television. Did you know that the invention of the television started in a science class, high school science class in Idaho around 1924? A young man, a high school student named Philo Farnsworth, a young man, a teenager at the time, had fallen out of love with the radio. He was a baseball fan. He enjoyed all things baseball. And at that time, he could listen to sports programming from all over the United States. But the problem was he wasn't satisfied with only hearing what was going on. He had this audacious idea that what if you could see and hear what was going on hundreds of miles away? How much greater would your experience be if you not only heard what was going on, but you saw it with your own eyes? It would be that journey that Philo would begin and he would have all kinds of competition as he invented the television that he would bring both sight and sound together. He would live to watch the television revolutionize the way we do life. He would be around because he was so young when he invented the television. He would be around and he would have the opportunity to watch Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin come down through the use of a television set to watch men walk on the moon. An invention that now has changed life and changed the way we do life. And here's the thing. We are not content with only one dimension of experience. It's not good enough for us alone to experience only hearing something. We want the sounds and the sights. And the television brought that to life. Now, why would Tim bring up, out of the book of James, the story of television? The reason why is the Christian life is designed not to just be heard, but to be seen. It is not just to be something that people can hear about, but they want a picture as well. You see, far too many of us talk and allow people to hear about our faith, to hear about our religion, but they rarely see it in action. We have a lot of radio Christians, if you will, not enough TV Christians that put sight and sound together. What James is going to tell us this morning is that our Christianity, if we want it to be authentic, must deliver both sound and picture of a growing maturity that shows and allows people to hear about a life that is becoming more like Jesus. But for them to see Jesus in and through us, they must hear our words, be backed up with things that they can see. Our faith must be tangible. In verse 22, we are told that the way we do this is we know the word and we do the word. We know the word and we can share with people the word, but they need to see us living that out on an ongoing basis. And so what James does, he says, I want to give you a test this morning. I want to give you a test 
and ask the question this morning, is your religion pure and undefiled? And I want you to think about it because some of us may find ourselves that we're all talk and no action. That we are all about talking about our relationship with Jesus Christ, but really at the end of the day, it makes no change in our lives. It doesn't move us to a place of action. James says if that's the case, your religion is worthless and you're deceiving yourself. Now right away we get into the text. And a word that comes to mind is the word religion. It's the word religion. Now you would think the Bible's a religious book, that this word religion would be used over and over and over again. I want you to know that three times in these two verses, the word religion or religious is shared. But would you be surprised if I told you that the word religion or religious is only written two other times in all of Scripture? The Bible doesn't talk about it very often. And here James articulates that this religion, or to be religious, is a word we need to know. It's a word we need to understand. And I will tell you that the word religion is a word that both in the secular and Christian circles is something we know. It's a word that we're told to stay away from. Right? As an adult, you're told not to talk about two things in a social gathering, right? Politics and religion. And so here James breaks the rule. He breaks the rule and he says, listen, I want to talk about your religion. Now I want you to notice, because right away religion has a negative quality to it. People will say, you know what, I don't like religion. I remember growing up there was a a rock band that, that would articulate this well. They were bad religion. And yet when we realize and understand that religion here in this passage is spoken both negatively and yet positively. It speaks about a religion that is worthless. Now we've all seen that, right? We've all seen people go through the motions. We've seen people who have no care about Jesus but live all kinds of rituals and all kinds of things for a myriad of reasons except for honoring and worshiping God. And that offends us. Even as Christians, that's offensive to us. How can you go through the motions? Jesus addressed this kind of religion when he addressed the leaders of his day that said that they were pure and undefiled and, 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 and totally spiritual. And Jesus would say, you know what? You're just a group of whitewashed tombs. Oh, you're pretty on the outside, but what's contained on the inside is just a box of dead men's bones. What's on the inside isn't being revealed on the outside, and what's revealed on the outside isn't true on the inside. And there's a part of us, when we see it on Facebook, or we hear someone at work or in our community that talks about being a, a religious person, but then does all manner of sinful things, and really there's no connection to what they say or what they do to what they say they believe, We say right away that religion is worthless. We get that. But what about a religion, a religion that is pure and undefiled? God is about religion? You see, as evangelicals, we have bought into this idea that religion is bad. And I've heard over and over again the phrase, I am not religious, but I have a relationship with Jesus. Now, I get what's being articulated there. I get and understand that you want to make something personal, but I want you to know you can't have uh, a relationship with Jesus and not be a part of religion. 
You, you can't do that. We are a part of a religion. We are a part of an external or outward expression of a faith. We are a part of a Christian religion. Now, we want to be a part of a Christian religion that God finds undefiled, not worthless. Uh, this became popular a couple of years ago when a young man named Jefferson Bithke, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, went viral with a spoken word um, poem. And he articulated the following. Look to your screen. He said, why I hate religion but love Jesus. I'm sure many of you saw it. It had millions upon millions of watchers. The guy's an incredibly talented man. Here's the problem. As I watched uh, what he said, he threw out the baby with the bathwater. He didn't read that there is religion that God, file, God finds undefiled and pure. God doesn't hate all kinds of religion. He hates some kind of religion. And we need to be careful that as we articulate our faith, we're a part of a religion. We're a part of a religion that we desire and we stretch and we seek to grow in a religion that honors and worships God that allows what we say to be the framework of all that we do. All of it imperfectly. But when we miss the boat, we are quick to respond and say, hey, listen, I was a bad advertiser there, and I want to share with you a disclaimer that while I said that, listen, I didn't live it, and that was wrong of me. God desires for us to have religion. The question is, what religion do you have? Now notice, there's an observation that needs to be made. A couple things. First of all, we need to define it. Write in your outlines. I know I don't have a lot of things in there, so you've got plenty of room for note-taking this morning. Write this down. Religion is the outward expression of one's faith. Religion is the outward expression of one's faith. Now this is incredibly important because what we do is we interpret the Bible falsely through our own understanding of terms. Listen, don't ever interpret the Bible through your terms. Interpret it through God's terms. So when you read that someone's religion is worthless right away, there are some in our congregation who will say, what James is saying is, is if I don't keep a tight rein on my tongue, if I don't look after orphans, and if I am stained in this world, well, then I'm a sinner, and even though I've professed Christ, I'm going to hell because God says my religion is worthless. That's not what James is saying. Nowhere does it say that your salvation is at risk. James knew the word salvation. He doesn't use that word. He uses a very particular word, religion. Religion, an outward expression of one's faith. So when James says, and this is very important, when James says your religion is worthless, he's not addressing the internal per se, but the ex external expression of your faith. And so listen, what he's saying is, is, listen, if your walk doesn't match your talk, you may still be saved. There, there's no question, if you have been a follower of Jesus Christ, if you bowed the knee, Jesus Christ says, once you're in my Father's hand, nobody can snatch you out of that. And James isn't saying, well, he can snatch you out. If, if listen, if you don't do these three things, then you're an unbeliever. Ooh, those jet airplanes over at Aurora Airport taking off. Okay? He doesn't say that. 
What he's saying is that your religion, your outward expression, it ain't doing you any favors. And some of us right now, our religion's doing us no favors at all. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're just not a good advertiser of it. You're causing people hindrances. You're not helping them to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So, the question isn't this morning, because listen, he's already articulated over and over again. You're my brothers. Now, we know right off the bat, these are not kin brothers, meaning they're not cousins, they're not brothers like Jesus and James were brothers of the same mother and, uh, and father. This is, this is different. The reason who he's talking to is a group of believers. So in context, we've got a group of believers that now James in verses 1, 26, and 27 are saying, listen, believers, you didn't lose your salvation, but might you be risking allowing your lack of being a doer of the word to be the best advertisement for others to see? And he's going to use these three things. Now, I want you to also notice another observation. That what James is not saying is that these three things are the totality of what it means to be a Christian. He's using them as examples. He's not saying that, listen, if you're a Christian and you're not helping with orphans, you're a failure. If you're a a Christian and you struggle with your tongue, then you're an abject failure. I want you to notice that the book of James is a five-chapter book. In fact, this comes from a five-chapter book, these two verses, from five chapters that talk about a whole bunch of other stuff of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This book of James is a five-chapter book amidst 65 other books filled with chapters upon chapters upon chapters of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So what James is not saying is, listen, this is the totality of what a good faith is. We do that with passages of Scripture. We go to a passage in Micah, and we say, what does it mean to be a follower of God? To act justly, to seek mercy. And we say, well, those are the only things we got to do. No, there's far more that we're called to. What these are is these are a good assessment to help us evaluate if we're on the right track. Nationwide, there's a test that high school students take called, I guess there's two, the ACT and the SAT. Now, let me ask you this question. When you take that test, are they questioning you on the totality of all of your educational experience up to that point? No. They are taking a core of ideas, a core of thoughts, a core of questions, and saying, if we can see if they're proficient in these areas through these questions, then we'll be able to judge a little better the totality of it. Is it perfect? No. Because I got a 14 the first time I took the ACT. And I'm brilliant. (laughs) Right? And so the test doesn't always give it. But I'll tell you what, it helps us to get a baseline of where we're at. So these three principles are important because they serve as a baseline of what true religion will look like and we'll explain why in a moment. So notice, what are the three questions on the test? First of all, we've got to look at the inward question. The inward question, write that down in your outlines. The inward question is the question, how am I doing in my conversation with others? Do I have a true religion? Do I have a worthwhile religion? Do I have an undefiled religion? Well, let's ask the question. 
How am I doing at talking with others? Notice, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James begins by addressing the tongue. It's my opinion that James isn't coming up with these questions out of thin air. That he actually has proof that within these assemblies that these types of things are going on. So he has heard that Joe Christian in his day has walked into a church and is speaking all kinds of horrific things, all kinds of cursing and, 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 and bad things. But then says he's a follower of Jesus Christ. James says, listen, Joe Christian, what you say is going to have direct connections to what you're doing as a Christian. James has four, far more to say about what it means for us to get control of our tongues in James chapter 3. And so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here and then just preach the same sermon twice. So we'll leave a lot of the tongue to James chapter 3 starting in verse 1. But I want you to point out a couple things about it. Number one, the reason why James uses the tongue as an example for our faith is our tongue is something we must take possession of. Write that down somewhere. It's a personal thing. Notice the ownership of your tongue. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Four times. He does not, as as speaking to a corporate group, he brings it down to a singular person. Listen very carefully this morning. You own your tongue. You own the words that come out of your mouth. And so do I. We can't blame others for what we say. We can't blame God for what we say. We can't blame the devil for what we say. But just as in in chapter 1, when talking about temptations, we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. And so we have this desire within our heart. We're angry. We're frustrated. We want to tell this salacious story. We want to gossip. We want to swear. Well, that doesn't start in the tongue. You see, the tongue is connected to the heart. It's connected, and so it's personal. And we want to understand that it's something that's a personal thing. But notice also that it is something that James tells us doesn't need to cease, but be controlled. Now, why does it need to be controlled? God gave us a tongue to use it for things. We are to build others up with our tongue. We're to encourage. We are to uh, share the truths and words of God. It is made clear in the book of Romans that the only way people can know the good news of Jesus Christ is by sharing it with people. How can they know what they have not heard? Well, how do they hear? Because someone's opening their mouth and using the instrument of their tongue to articulate truth. God loves when we use our tongue for good things. But he recognizes that just as as you and I do, with every good thing we have, remember, God gives every good and perfect gift. And so he's given us our tongue to be of good gifts to others. But with that comes the temptation to use that gift that God has given and to use it in harmful ways. 
And so notice what he says. He says, listen, I don't want you to stop talking. I want you to bridle your tongue. I want you to control it. God has given us a tongue to be used in great and awesome ways. But when the tongue is uncontrolled, we'll learn about in James chapter 3, it becomes like a raging fire. And so notice, he says, I want you to put a bridle on it. You see, the tongue is the window into your soul. It displays what the heart is thinking. You see, we can't see our heart. We can't judge or examine the hearts of men. We can't know their motives. We can't do any of that. Why? Because we can't see within the human heart what a person is thinking or feeling. And so we need something to show us that, to declare that to us, and the tongue does that. My kindergartner teacher put it this way. If you have garbage on the inside, one day it will come out. Jesus put it in a better way. He he said this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words are connected to your heart. And when you talk to people, you are telling them, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling, and and they hear it loud and clear. And we try to cover it, we try to deceive others with it, we try to do it through lying and all kinds of deception. But listen, at the end of the day, your tongue is going to tell the secrets of your heart. It's connected. It's connected. Your tongue can't do one thing while your religion or your faith is doing another. And so this is where we need to be careful. This is where we have to be so very careful because if our mouth is advertising one thing and then we are saying, if it's saying I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I have, I have a, um, a, a love for God and I have a love for uh, the work of God in my life, but then out of one side you hear that, but then on the other side of your mouth you say all kinds of curseful and, and hateful and ugly things, the people who are looking at your religion are going to say, what kind of religion is this? As James says, how can fresh water, salt water come from a freshwater well? How can you have blessing out of one word and cursing with another? And so what we're doing is our religion is becoming a hindrance, not a help for people to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Write this passage down. I'll turn there for us. Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, starting in verse 13, it says this, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. You see, we can talk a good game with regards to our relationship with God. It's always easier to talk about your relationship with God than to do it. And so we talk all of these things in banking terms. What we're doing is when our talk doesn't match our walk, we are bouncing checks. You see, we get a, a piece of paper, it's called a check, and someone says, I need to, I, I'm gonna buy this particular thing, it's gonna cost me this amount, and we write on the, the thing, the amount, the person we're buying it from, we rip off that piece of paper and we hand it to them with the idea that when they go to the bank and that is presented to the bank, the bank will take that piece of paper and turn that into money that will then be turned into their accounts. 
The problem is, is that we deceive people when we write checks that we have no intention of having money in the bank account to take care of. Listen, some of us are writing bad checks with our religion. We're saying one thing, but when someone presents that to God or to others, it bounces. It's no good. It's only worth the piece of paper that it was written upon. And we need to be careful that when we show people our outward expression of our faith, that when someone presents it to God, God doesn't say, well, that's not right. That doesn't have value. When people watch Tim and Amanda live out their lives, and they say, well, I want to model that, I better hope and I better pray that when they take what they've seen modeled in my life and my wife's life, that when they take that to God, God puts a stamp of approval and says, here, here's the currency you're looking for. Here's the holiness you've been desiring. But for far too many of us, our tongues get in the way. As Isaiah said, we are a people who draw near with our mouth and honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Our religion, the outward expression, has no value when seen only in word, but not in deed. Do we believe the message we preach? Do we believe that Jesus changed his life? Sadly, far too many of us love to sing and proclaim things on Sunday, but when we leave and head out on Monday, other words come out. Paul reminds us that the kingdom of God is not just a matter of talk, but of power. So the crux of what James is saying here, so I can move on, is for us to simply profess that we have a life in God and remain unchanged is unthinkable. Our faith, our religion has a job. To bridle something that is untamed, James uses the phrase bridle just very quickly. Why the tongue? Because James uses the illustration of a bridle that goes into the horse of a mouth. And this is what he says. You will know the taming of an animal when you get control of its mouth. A horse gets a bridle put in its mouth, and you can control it. What a wild bronco doesn't have is a bridle in its mouth, a bit in its mouth, that causes it to have to be led and subdued. Far too many of us are wild broncos without a bridle in our tongue, and we tell the world, I am submissive to Jesus, and they go, but your tongue is jumping and bucking all over the place. How can one be true of the other? It's not helpful, it's a hindrance. We have people that are living out religion in word but not deeds. Be careful. Your outward expression of your faith will be worthless. It's a bad bounce check. Number two, once we've looked to the inward through our mouth, we ask the question about the outward in my compassion with others. In James 1.27, James says, hey, your religion is pure, and if that's your goal, then not only do you need to watch your words, but our hearts need to be drawn to show love to others in the area of compassion. If your religion is real, it will exude from every part of who you are, and it will say, listen, if you've got a right heart, if you're changed by Jesus, it's going to lead you to action. It's going to move you and motivate you to do things that by yourself you would not do. Now, James is articulating what he heard from his brother. The need for compassion. It says of Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds of people, he had compassion for them. He saw they were a herding and harassed group of people, sheep without a shepherd. 
And where did Jesus get that from? No doubt Jesus got that uh, from the mind of the Trinity. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that God has this heart for the hurting. God has a heart for the oppressed. God has a heart for the fatherless and the widow. For the sojourner, the refugee. God longs to take care of them. God longs to minister to them. And that's the reason why we are called to compassion. Again, write this passage down in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 through 17. Here's what the heart of God says. What to me is a multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. What he's saying is, don't give me your, your, your fake religion. I've got enough of that. And in verse 12, he says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts, bring no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me, new moons and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in a solemn assembly. Your new moons you have appointed in your feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. What God wants is not more worship through ritual and through activity that doesn't hit the heart. He wants hearts that are given to the things he's given to. And Jesus has a heart for compassion now notice what he says. He says, listen, I, I want you to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That word visit was used of our Savior twice in Luke chapter 1. When Zechariah is prophesying of the coming of the Messiah, he says twice that the Lord will visit his people. And what James is using in that word visit, we might think, well, that just means, you know, say hi and, and entertain and interact for a little bit. But that word visit, when it says that Jesus will visit his people, he didn't come and hang out with us for a little while. But what we see of that visiting has a threefold manifestation to it. Write this down. Number one, to visit someone is a ministry of closeness. Jesus put on flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We are called to minister to the fatherless and to the widows in their distress. We are to get up close and personal with them. We are to make them our kin. We are to make them a part of our family. Why? Because relationships have failed them. And so we go and we redeem that relationship by being related to them, if you will. By being close to them. And so the ministry to orphans and widows in their distress is a ministry of closeness. You cannot phone it in. You can't do it from another area code. Jesus had to leave heaven and come to earth to visit us. Number two, it is a costly ministry. Jesus came and in his visit it would cost him his life. Talk to those who have adopted children. Talk to those who have gone and ministered to orphans and widows in their distress. And they will tell you it's costly. It isn't easy. 
It takes time. It takes money. It takes all manner of emotional and spiritual and relational capital. There are times where visiting those in distress will cause you a bit of distress. It caused Jesus that. Jesus came to redeem us, and it cost him his life. It cost him fellowship with the Father. It cost him all of the good that he had going on in heaven. He had to lay that aside to endure what it would mean to visit us. It's a ministry of closeness. It's a ministry that's costly. And notice, finally, it's a ministry that's critical. Jesus had to visit us because without him we were lost. And what James is saying is, is the reason why I want to point out orphans and widows, without someone ministering to them, without someone reaching out to them, without someone coming to their aid, they will be lost. And just as Jesus left his throne in heaven, we need to leave our throne and we need to minister to people because they're at a critical place. They need help. Because without help, they have no hope. And what James is saying here is, the reason why we are involved in a close and costly and critical ministry like that to orphans and widows is because it's an example of untainted religion. Here's why. When you minister to an orphan and widow, there's nothing, especially when they're in their distress, there's nothing they can give back. No one can question your motives. What good is it to help an orphan? How's that going to elevate you in this world? People don't care about orphans. What's it going to do to help a widow in her distress? This was the lowest of low in James's day. And what James is saying is untainted religion gets down and gets its hands dirty in helping those who will never be able to pay you back. And so no one can say you're doing this for some ulterior motive. You're doing it because you are trying to live as Jesus Christ told us to. To serve, not to be served. To look to the least of these in their distress. That's why this morning you've heard about ministries like Pregnancy Information Center, ministering to the most helpless of ours, the unborn, to help those that find themselves with an unwanted pregnancy. If we want to prove our faith, our religion here at Village Bible Church, we need to lock arms with ministries like that. What does it gain us? It gains us nothing. But that's the proof in the pudding, that it isn't about us, but it's about people who will never be able to repay us back for the good that we're able to do. How about all the ministries in the foyer? You're going to see all types of opportunities, whether the Pregnancy Information Center or a a myriad of opportunities to serve in adoption-type ministries. And we're all called to different kinds of adoption-type ministries. But I've been so blessed to see our families serve either by supporting and and sponsoring a child through the Juna Amagara ministry or ministries like Compassion that are ministering and taking care of the needs of those that are in help? How about the ministry of of some of our adoptive families that have made forever homes? We're going to hear about that in a moment. How the lives have been changed of people that have brought children into their lives. Or as we've seen in our Aurora ministry, the ministry of refugees. Listen, I, I don't want to get too political here, but our hearts should break for refugees. 
I get and I understand the job of our government to protect its people. I totally think that's a legitimate uh, claim. But as Christians, our hearts should break that there are people who are running for their lives with no place to live. Don't ever let your politics defile your religion. God loves the broken. God loves the fatherless. God loves the spouse who has no one else anymore. God loves the unborn. And true and undefiled religion looks after the things that God loves. And loves it as well. The inward, the outward, finally the upward. And I don't have a lot of time, so we'll move quickly through this. How's my conduct before others? How's my conduct before God and others? Notice in the phrase that we are to remain unstained from the world. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to see. Yes, we can help widows and orphans in their distress, but we need God's help to do all of these things. Our love for God won't change who we are unless we allow that love to change our mouths, our compassion, and now our conduct. Now notice, all of this is done, notice, before the sight of God, in the presence of God. Religion that is faultless and undefiled before God. That's the audience. Write that down somewhere. We have an audience. God is our audience. And he's watching. And he's, he's taking stock of what he sees. Does God say that yours and, and my faith is unstained? Are we doing everything in our power to keep clean? Are we not presuming upon the grace of God and therefore sinning all the more so grace may abound? God's our audience. Because God's our audience, there's an action. The action is is that uh, we are to keep. That phrase to keep is in the present tense, which means it's going, 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 always happening. It's a word that meant to guard or to keep watch. It's, it's the word that was used of a prison warden over a jail or a prison. That he kept watch of his inmates, knowing that the second he allowed for any kind of freedom of the inmates, that there would be a mutiny in the prison. And so to keep watch over our souls and to make sure we're unstained is to keep track of those desires and those wants in our lives that if we let them go, they will get the best of us. And so we keep watch and, and we make sure, notice the accountability. It is our job. Notice he says to keep oneself. You can't blame mom, you can't blame dad, you can't blame pastor, you can't blame brother or sister, you can't blame your friends. I don't want to get into too much detail of this, but last night, uh, my oldest son learned about bad company corrupting good character. And he learned a valuable lesson that it's not his friend's jobs to keep him pure. But what it is, is it's his job. He has to own it. And what is good for a 14-year-old is good for a 40-year-old. I got to own what I see. I got to own what I say. I got to own where I go. And I can't get mad at the devil, I can't get mad at the world, I can't get mad at the temptations. i got to get mad at myself and say, you know what? It's my fault that I'm tainted and stained by this world. So what am I going to do to make sure that that doesn't happen? Notice the antidote. What's the antidote? Know the word and do what it says. Psalm 119 tells us that the way I keep myself pure is by meditating and knowing the Word of God and doing what 
it says. Let me close with some thoughts for you this morning. I want to remind you that you and I will never have pure religion without the person and work of Jesus Christ living in and through us. So don't just do tasks and say, listen, I'll just do, 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 do. Because we can do religion and not have Jesus. But allow your relationship with Jesus to form your religion and say, God, when I miss it, I want you to hold me accountable. God, when my tongue gets out of the way or or gets out of control, I want you to grab it and I want you to bridle it back. God, when I become stained by the world or my compassion begins to wane, God, I want you to speak into my life. God, I want you to address those things so that how I advertise my faith might not be worthless, but be pure and undefiled.